What's going on? Welcome into the Pelicans podcast presented by SeatGeek on this Monday, a game day edition as the Pelicans continue their four-game homestand tonight as they welcome in the Indiana Pacers alongside Jim Eikenhofer of Pelicans.com. And joining us from the Pacers is Pat Boylan, radio sideline and studio host for the Indiana Pacers radio network. Also does some things with Fox Sports Indiana. Pat, happy game day. Good to talk to you. Happy New Year as well. Hey, yeah, it's good to be doing these interview, <laughs> interviews in 2021, if nothing else. But it's good to hear from you guys as well, and great to have the season underway. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's it's better than nothing, as a lot of us are saying. So uh, it should be an exciting matchup as well tonight um, for the Pelicans and Pacers. Both teams at 4-2. and um, Kind of wanted to get your thoughts um, on the Pacers with a new head coach and Nate Bjorkren. Um, what, what, tell us a little bit more about this Pacers team through six games. Yeah, you know, it's such an interesting dichotomy going into the season because on one hand, the Pacers had remarkable continuity. Uh, Their top 13 guys are back by both minutes or points, however you look at it. Uh, so you just don't see that in today's NBA, just that many guys back. It's, it's an extreme anomaly. But on the other hand, you've got a new coaching staff, uh, a new system coming in place on offense and defense. Uh, so in that regard, um, there's a lot of changes. And so I was very curious to see early in the season, especially, would they look more of the team that's undergoing a coaching change or would they look more of the team that um, is bringing everybody back on one that was on pace to win 50 games had they played 82 a year ago? And I think, as expected, you're finding the answer somewhere in the middle. Uh, under Nate McMillan, the Pacers were a slower team, bottom in the NBA and three-pointers attempted. Uh, poor in rebounding, uh, didn't get to the line a whole lot, but otherwise, as I said, had a lot of success in the regular season. This team is wanting to play faster, shoot a lot more threes, diminished the mid-range some, so it is a fairly significant change, and uh, so far it all seems for the better, but I think you're going to have your learning curves, and you know, a couple nights ago against the Knicks was probably a good example of that. The Pacers dropped a game at home to New York after beating them fairly handedly in the opener, and so I think it, it it might still stand to be bumpy here for the first month or so as all these changes come into play, but the, the roster around this team, as long as it stays healthy and it's not totally healthy, TJ Warren's out and might be out here for an extended period of time. Um, but in general, I, I think it, it stands to be a team that um, has a fair amount of success and probably gets better as the season goes on. So you mentioned the continuity and, you know, sometimes a new coach, you can add a new coach, but their style may not match with the players on the roster. Does this roster match um, what the new coach wants to do? Well, there are a couple interesting storylines as it relates to that. But in general, I do think so. Um, you know, Malcolm Brogdon was a 50, 40, 90 guy coming into Indy. So shooting more threes, obviously something that um, works for him. Uh, Miles Turner is somebody who can extend the floor and probably – Uh, should be taking more threes, although he struggled to shoot them this year. He's a pretty good three-point shooter. Um, DeMontis Sabonis is probably never going to be a a big three-point weapon, but he's actually hit them pretty well in the early portion of the season. Oladipo is a pretty well-rounded player, but the Pacers also have a lot of guys that are good in the mid-range, and there's kind of a balance there. Um, You know, in general, that mid-range jump shot is a lower efficiency type of shot compared to, of course, a layup or a three. Uh, But if you have guys that are good at it, and maybe the best example of that is not on the roster right now in terms of uh, his health, but is TJ Warren, who is just uh, remarkable in the mid-range. And you don't want to totally take that away from guys. And Nate Bjorkren isn't. Um, The Pacers are doing something like going from 
18 or 19 shots per game in the mid-range last year to like 10 or 11 this year. So it's cut back, but it's not, you know, they haven't tried to turn into the Houston Rockets overnight. I think the most interesting guy on the Pacers roster as it relates to how he fits is TJ McConnell. Now, granted, he's not going to be somebody who's rarely on the floor uh, at the end of games. He's not ever going to be a big scorer or anything like that, but he does kind of shepherd that second unit. And McConnell's a guy who rarely gets up threes um, and, you know, obviously has some physical limitations, but lives in the mid range. And as the, another aspect the Pacers are trying to add to this is on defense, they want to be a lot more aggressive. So if you look at the Pacers historically, really since 2000, they have probably been the NBA's best defensive team over the last couple of decades. Uh, in that time, they've been in the top five five or six years and they've been in the top 15 every single year on the other hand uh, their offense has been kind of about league average over the course of of a couple decades and so they're trying to bring the offense up without letting the defense fall too far and the Pacers were a good defensive team last year and so again that asks a, a question of McConnell who's a very aggressive defender which seems to fit that mold uh, but on the other hand sometimes he can struggle with bigger, stronger point guards. So I think on balance, the roster is set up to do this, but there are a couple interesting scenarios like McConnell. Um, does Sabonis continue to have a high level of success that are worth watching in the early portion of the season? Before I get to Jim, a quick question on TJ Warren. You mentioned him out with that foot injury. So who's the guy that's going to have to step up in this place, Pat? Well, immediately it's been Aaron Holiday, which might not seem like the normal player that would step in there. The Pacers, though, have gone smaller, at least when they have not had a starter this year, which has been half of their games. Oladipo sat the second half of a back-to-back, and now there have been a couple without Warren. Um, Aaron Holiday's been the guy that's literally stepped into the starting lineup, and he's capable. Um, Holiday's a guy that's been asked to come off the bench last year. He was out of the rotation at times last year. He was starting last year. Uh, I remember a a couple games where he hit go-ahead shots that won Pacers games. So he's been asked to do – a little bit of everything, and he's been pretty good in the starting lineup. But to me, the bigger question then becomes their depth. Uh, Indiana, for example, on Saturday night in their loss to the Knicks, really only went with an eight-man rotation. They threw Keelan Martin out there for four minutes. He struggled in the first half and never came back. You can pull that off for a short period of time, but it, it appears as if Warren's going to be gone for more than a short period of time so they're going to have to figure out the starting lineup's going to be fine top to bottom the Pacers I think have one of the best starting lineups in the NBA but off the bench then do they have enough contribution now that they lose Aaron Holiday from it and who's going to be that ninth and maybe even potentially tenth man it's it could still very well be Keelan Martin he struggled in his first couple of games Edmund Sumner is a possibility there. Cassius Stanley, their draft pick, is a possibility there. So I'm not sure it's one guy that necessarily needs to step up, but the Pacers need to be able to find more uh, than eight guys in their rotation consistently. And so can they find a ninth guy out of that group that gives them consistent minutes? Pat, I wanted to kind of take a step back and look at things maybe kind of big picture for the Pacers, if you don't mind. Um one of the things I've noticed about them over the years, I think a lot of people that follow the NBA would, would say this, is that it seems like we go into every season and people kind of overlook the Pacers. They don't talk about them. They're not kind of a flashy team. Um, I think this season is kind of the same way. When people talk about the Eastern Conference, you have this list of five or six other teams and people kind of are like, oh, and oh, by the way, the Pacers are also competitive. Um, I'm not sure this is something that people are in, in Indiana care that much about, but 
do you kind of get the feeling that they that they're 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 kind of underrated again in, in terms of just a team that um, people don't really look at that much, but once again, they're off to a good start and, and they're, they're the kind of team that it seems like they, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen in so early in the season, but that they could be just as good or better than some of the, the teams that people have hyped up so much in the East. Yeah, Jim, I think you're on the right storyline there and on the right timeline as you, at least as it relates to how it, kind of seems the national view on the Pacers uh, is perceived and how in general the last few years they've tended to exceed those expectations Uh, some of it you know just kind of comes with the territory I think Pacers fans are used to especially you know in an environment where you've got Philadelphia and some of the bigger markets um, playing fairly well you add Giannis to the mix Um, if you look at the the top teams in the NBA from a star power standpoint the Pacers are, you know, not immediately a team that you think of. And I think that's why this happens. Uh, you know, you've got bigger markets like Boston, Miami, and Philadelphia that garner a lot of spotlight naturally. You've got Giannis in the mix. And Toronto, of course, has um, spoken for themselves the last few years. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're finding Indiana sixth, seventh, eighth in the conversation. And who knows, you know, where they're going to finish. But at least in the last few years, they finished higher than they have perceived to be. And that really goes back to Oladipo's first year here in 2017-2018, when many predicted the Pacers were going to be in the lottery and perhaps fairly high in the lottery. And instead, um, they pushed Cleveland to seven games in LeBron's final year in the first round. And I, I think so much of that ha- does have to do with the star power aspect. And I think the Pacers are kind of an interesting um, offshoot of what the NBA tries to do in a lot of ways. They start a couple of bigs uh, in Miles Turner and DeMontis Sabonis, which, of course, is pretty abnormal around the NBA. Uh, but also, you look at the teams that tend to be projected above Indiana – And I think for all of them, you can make a pretty good case that their best player is better than the Pacers' best player. And of course, this is the NBA. It's a superstar league. That's very important. Um, But what I think sometimes gets underrated, and if the Pacers can ever get these guys all healthy, which it looked like they might to start the year, and now TJ Warren is out again. But if they could ever get this group healthy from one to five, the Pacers may not have a quote unquote superstar in there. But I think you could make a case that you've got the potential for having four to even five stars amongst that group. Again, if they could stay healthy, DeMontis Sabonis is an all-star and T started this year playing better uh, than he did last year. TJ Warren, many people forgot before the bubble that he actually led the Pacers in scoring and then had that 50 point and a couple of 40 point outbursts in the bubble and showed what he's capable of uh frankly i thought for most of last season in the beginning portion that malcolm brogdon was going to be the pacers all-star assuming they only got one he started to get banged up as you got closer uh to the uh, voting deadlines and sabonis closed strong and it ended up being him but if brogdon had stayed healthy i think it's very possible he was the all-star and not sabonis and you add oladipo to the mix which was a big question mark coming in and still i think is somewhat of a question mark but he's looked i think really good overall and Oladipo's been an all-star a couple of times. And then you throw Miles Turner into the mix, who I think would be um, perhaps defensive player of the year if for some reason they, vo- they shut, it, uh, shut the voting down after six games. And you combine all of that and you say, okay, there's not a Giannis on that group. There's not, um, you know, a Jason Tatum on that group. Um, but one through five, I think it would be, you'd be pretty hard pressed to beat that group if they're all healthy and so that's how if the Pacers are going to contend this year and probably in future years save a big trade or a lot of movement they're going to have to beat you 
um, that way with five really good guys instead of one or two superstars. Um, you know, I didn't even bring the Nets into this equation, which obviously deserve uh, to be brought in as well. And it'll be uh, it'll be fascinating, I think, to watch. I think in general, uh, the East is better. I think the East, for the first time, is starting to look a little bit more on par with the West. I'm not sure they're there yet, but I think they're definitely getting closer, um, which obviously makes things tougher. But um, we will see. I, th- I think exceeding expectations is something they've done the last three years or so, and it wouldn't surprise me if they did so again. Yeah, that, you know, that's interesting. I, I'm not trying to make this direct comparison, but we have seen teams be very successful that don't have one superstar. You know, like the mid-2000s Pistons, for example, were a team that used that formula of we don't have one guy that stands out. We have five players who are all really good players and work together as a group. So that'll be interesting to see how that works out with the Pacers. I know um, for, for me personally, I, I'd be happy to see teams like that succeed be, so we can get – a little bit away from the narrative of you can't possibly win big unless you have, you know, one of the top five players or you have like a super mega star in the NBA. I feel like that would be good for the league in a lot of ways that we probably don't have time to get into the discussion about right now. But um, another thing I think that you you mentioned earlier, I think from afar, one of the reasons why the I think the Pacers are underrated too is because they're so good defensively every year, people kind of latch onto the the shiny objects, it seems like in preseason, we kind of look at just offense. And we, and I think that that's another reason why, you know, it, they, they seem to be undervalued going into every year is just that they're such a good defensive team. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's been remarkable. I mean, unless you are here and I think even sometimes Pacers fans maybe forget this, um, just how good the Pacers have been defensively, not only the last few years, but the last couple of decades. I mean, it has just been <laughs> such a staple uh, whether you're looking at, you know, those those finals teams, uh, the final team in, in 2000, those Lady Eastern Conference finals teams in the late 90s, all the way through uh, really up until this year, even last year, the Pacers have been just remarkably consistent on defense. And I think you're probably right. Um, a team without a, a quote unquote mega superstar and a team that isn't super flashy on offense and it's not in one of the biggest markets. Well, there's probably your formula of being overlooked right there. But uh, the reality is you've got a, a team that has been terrific on the defensive end for a very long time. Um, and, and one that has got, I think four players and you can maybe even stretch that into five if Turner um, were to bring up his offensive game this year, that it wouldn't totally shock you if made an all-star team this season. And so, yeah, I, I think you're on the right page there. I think that's probably the case. And to me, one of the kind of nervous aspects going into this season was, could they keep that defense up? Not that anybody took it for granted, but, you know, the, the Pacers could walk into a season and be eighth in the league in defense without, uh, you know, really even opening their eyes. Well, Dan Burke was an assistant coach, longtime assistant coach. Uh, he's in Philadelphia now, and he headed up that defense. And he played a very different style than the Pacers are wanting to play. Their styles didn't mesh. And um, so a, a change happened there after really a, an insanely long period of having a, an assistant coach on a team. He goes again back to those uh, that team that went to the finals in 2000 and was with them last year, too. And so, yeah, they want to shoot more threes. They want to get out of the mid-range. They want to play faster. They want to be more aggressive. But can they do that uh, without costing themselves on the defensive end, which has been base of the pyramid of why the Pacers have had success the last couple of decades? You mentioned earlier also the unique pairing that the Pacers have where they actually play kind of two conventional bigs. 
I know that Turner has three-point ability and Sabonis also can stretch the defense a little bit, but they really are, you know, more of the conventional four and five. And as I'm sure you know, the Pelicans are actually going with that as well this year where they have Zion and Steven Adams. I was wondering, you know, just in general, what is that something that you get tired of hearing about? I feel like we're only six games into the season and I'm already kind of <laughs> a little bit um, worn out with hearing about how like, oh, you can't possibly have two bigs like that playing together because it's something that the Pelicans are trying as well. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, you're, you're on the money again. Uh, it does get a tiring storyline, a fair one, uh, but a tiring one just because I think especially when the Warriors came in, everyone was like, can a big play in today's NBA? And heaven forbid you ever try to have two of them out there at one uh, time, you know. Yeah. And for the, for the Pacers, it's, I, I don't want to say it's a perfect marriage because there are times when it can be a little bit clunky. Um, DeMontis Sabonis guarding the opposing four can be challenging if that's a really dynamic four who's a good three-point shooter. Um, Sabonis is, a, is an all right defender, but, you know, in an ideal world, is he chasing guys around the perimeter? Probably not. Um, in an ideal world, are you able to use Turner's skill set a little bit more on offense? Yeah, probably. But the reason I think it's worked pretty well so far and why I remain confident in it is on offense, Sabonis is one of the best uh, centers in the NBA. Um, he's a potential 20-point-per-game scorer, was at 19 last year. He's over 20 this year. Uh, he's, a, he's a walking double-double, 72 games in a row without having back-to-back -back games without a double-double. And one thing that's been really under the radar for him, and, I'm, and maybe it's just because Bam has kind of taken in the Robin role to Jokic as a passing big, but uh, Sabonis is averaging over six assists per game if you look at January 1, 2019 to now, which is over a pretty large chunk of games. He's, he's at like 6.2, 6.3 assists per game. Jokic last couple of years is in the low sevens. Uh, and Sabonis is in the low sevens this year. He's a terrific passer. And, and Turner is, is a capable three-point shooter and somebody who you don't mind if they, you know, won't guard him around the perimeter if he takes a, a bunch of those threes per game. And then on the defensive end, Turner is a, a really good rim protector, led the league in blocks a couple of years ago, leads the league in blocks as we're talking right now, also has created a bunch of turnovers through the steal. Uh, down there in the post and his numbers in terms of defending the rim opponents are shooting like 40% or so against him at the rim and the league average is around 60%. So he's been terrific there. So their skill sets are interesting because um, they almost complement each other perfectly in a way. And, and what I mean is the thing that Turner are really, is really good at um, Sabonis are maybe not as strong there and vice versa. If you could somehow morph them together, they would be like Anthony Davis, you know, but um, so it's it's working pretty well. I think it's still a fair question to ask, um, as you know, the Pacers are really only in early in year two of this experiment. But part of the reason I also think it's overrated is because, frankly, these guys aren't on the floor together as much as people make it out to be, uh, especially as Indiana has gone a little thinner into their depth um, in terms of that second unit. Typically, either Nate McMillan or Bjorkren would pull one of those two about six minutes into the first quarter. And then that guy would go mostly with the second unit. And that's been Sabonis more than Turner. Sabonis has been really dynamic with the second unit. He and Doug McDermott have kind of a terrific chemistry and pairing going. And then uh, once uh, 
once Sabonis goes through his rotation with the second unit, you've kind of got a hodgepodge of guys typically in there with Turner. And so they stagger him really well. And so it's not like you have to figure this out 35 minutes per game. You have to figure it out probably somewhere between 18 and 25 minutes per game. And when they're on the floor by themselves, they're a lot more in that typical role that you would expect them to be. So, um, yeah, it, it's a, it's, I think an over discussed storyline here. I, I think, uh, getting a little tired of it, but one that you understand it's, it is fair being early in this process. And I think everybody just got so used to, this is the only way to win in the NBA. Well, yeah, if you have Steph Curry and Clay Thompson and sometimes Kevin Durant, yeah, it's a great way to win. Not everybody's that lucky. For sure, that's Pat Boylan, sideline reporter, studio host for the Indiana Pacers Radio Network. Also does some work for Fox Sports Indiana. Pelicans and Pacers tonight from the Smoothie King Center. Both teams at four and two. And both teams and new coaches trying to see how everything fits in so far in the first couple of weeks of the season. Pat, I really appreciate the insight today, and uh, we'll, we'll speak to you later. Thanks again. Hey, good to talk with both of you guys, and uh, hope to do it again here soon. All right, Jim, so Pelicans and Pacers tonight, I think, uh, you know, we just discussed this, or you asked Pat about, the, you know, Sabonis and, and, and Miles Turner and how they work together on the floor, and you mentioned how they'll be facing Zion Williamson and Steven Adams tonight. I feel like that's going to be the most intriguing matchup tonight, just which front court has to kind of cater to the other one's front court, whether it's the offensive style. You know, Williamson and Steven Adams don't really shoot the three well. Miles Turner, of course, is a pretty good three-point shooter, and Sabonis is trying to get there. I mean, that might take the Pelicans out of their comfort zone with some of those guys having to guard the perimeter. Yeah, it's probably one of the best, if maybe maybe not the best, um, test for Adams and Zion so far this season. I mean, the Pacers are – Sabonis is off to an incredible start. We've seen what kind of player Miles My- Turner is. It might not always show up in the stats for him, I think, because they simply have multiple other offensive weapons. It's not like he's going to get 20, 25 points every game. But uh, he's a sh- great shot blocker. As Pat mentioned, he's leading the league in blocks so far. So yeah, it's, I'm looking forward to watching those guys play, and I think it's a it, it'll be really interesting. It's not something we see very often where we have um, two teams that play quote unquote traditional or conventional bigs the way the Pacers and Pelicans do. Before I let you go, let's talk about this Pelicans team four and two through six games, and it, it's been wacky around the NBA as far as starts and there's some teams that you expect to be going pretty far under 500 some teams that you didn't expect to be over 500 um are and i know that that could be just an adjustment for teams right now but what do you what have you noticing from the pelicans in the first six games well to me i think there's two things for one as anyone that's followed the pelicans in the last few years realizes this team is not known for getting off to good starts so that has been very encouraging to me to be i need to look this up but i i think it's been a while since they started a season five and two and if it has happened recently it hasn't happened very often. So to be able to get a win tonight would be big. Um, obviously, you have two more games on this homestand. And then the second thing to me is that I think there are a lot of teams who understandably are kind of walking into this season saying, like, you know, we want to we want to get off to – everyone wants to get off to a good start, but it's not the end of the world if we don't. There's teams that came out of the bubble that spent a lot of time there that are kind of messing around with rotations and minutes and trying to – like ease their main guys in the season. So to me, for the Pelicans, you know, maybe they can take advantage of that. Maybe they can be one of the teams that has an edge because they get off to a good start while some of these other teams kind of get out of the gate slowly. So that's something that I, that I want to keep an eye on as far as, you know, nothing is going to be decided after the first 10 or 15 games, but 
maybe the Pelicans can get a little bit of an edge on some of these teams that were predicted to finish ahead of them or predicted to finish around them that maybe you can get a few games leg up on them. And, you know, New Orleans isn't, I wouldn't say that everything's clicking for them either. It's they, there's a lot of things that they can get better at. So for them to keep being able to get wins. And I think, you know, I don't want to overstate it too much, but for the seventh game of the season, I think this is a pretty important game tonight for New Orleans. If they can get this win, they'll be five and two. And like I said, they got a couple more home games on this uh, home stand against teams that are really trying to figure things out. And then obviously we go into a, a very daunting form formidable seven game road trip. That's the key right there, Jim, is before you get on that seven-game road trip that features the Clippers, the Lakers, the Jazz twice, the Dallas Mavericks once. I mean, this is a perfect opportunity for the Pelicans to get some wins. Not saying they're going to seven-game road trip and bomb, but at the same time, any cushion certainly helps uh, as a team that's trying to learn together. All right, Jim, appreciate the time. Uh, let's go get a win tonight. Sounds good. I will be speaking with you later at the arena. All right, Pelicans and Pacers tonight, 7 p.m. from the Smoothie King Center. If you're not there, Fox Sports New Orleans will have it for you starting with 6.30 with pregame coverage as well on ESPN New Orleans 100.3 FM. For Pat Boyland and Jim Eikenhofer, I'm Daniel Salerson. Thanks for listening to the Pelicans podcast presented by Seeky.